Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. And we're here with coffee and limited sleep. (laughs) Yes. Sorry in advance. Today, we are looking at Daniel 6, and this is the story actually probably the best known story out of the book of Daniel, the beginning of what led Daniel to go into the lion's den. So, as we look at verses 1 through 15, which is essentially the first half of the chapter, Nikki, what do you remember from your Adventist days about what led up to Daniel getting into the lion's den? Honestly, when we talk about the book of Daniel, I mostly remember the art. Yeah, I I remember the pictures and I did know that there was a law that was passed that said that he couldn't pray to his God Mm -hmm. and he could only pray to the king. That's how I understood it growing up and that he had decided to pray in front of his window and to make the point that he was going to obey God and not man. And so that was how I understood it. You know, the whole story of Daniel, though, for me as an Adventist was about me needing to be just like him. Mm -hmm. And the emphasis was on Daniel. And Daniel is an amazing man. And I can't wait to meet him and to talk to him. But I think the book of Daniel is a lot more about God than I ever understood. I've discovered that too. Isn't that amazing? Just this going through it together for the podcast, I've never seen how this book is about God. And His sovereignty and His ability to open the eyes of the unbelieving. Yeah. Without them looking for it. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember that art as well. The picture of Daniel praying in his open window And then later, the picture of him standing with a beam of light shining on him from above amid lions that are lying at his feet, Mm -hmm. you know. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it is so true. We've talked about this before, Nikki, but Adventists teach their children the Bible through the artwork in those Bible stories Mm -hmm. or the, the various different versions of Bible stories. Some have come out since Uncle Arthur, but there's still the art. Mm-hmm. The art tells the story, and that's how we learned it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember one time years ago at the Friday night former Adventist Fellowship Bible study, we were talking about Paul. We we were in Acts. <laughs> oh, yes, we were. <laughs> For a while. Uh-huh. And we were talking about that moment when he was on the road and he met the Lord. And we read through that passage and I'm like, wait a minute, where's his horse he fell off of? He, there's supposed to be a horse and he's supposed to be on the ground. And we did some research and found that was in the art. And so just some of these details that you think mm-hmm. are the Bible story are actually in the art. And that's probably true for a lot of traditions. Probably. You know, traditions yeah. will sometimes fill in the blanks. Yes, they do. But it's become so important to me now on this side of Adventism to know what the Bible says specifically. You know, I remember learning in college when I took the second year of music history, I had a 
professor who taught the class actually more as a history of Western civilization than just of music. So it was a kind of an arts and ideas class, which Mm -hmm. was very helpful to me because Mm -hmm. I always had trouble memorizing the dates and I didn't understand all that. But suddenly I understood the progress of Western civilization when we learned it with the perspective of arts and ideas. But one thing I remember learning was that in the Gothic period, which was essentially 1200 to the time of the Renaissance, that when they built those cathedrals with those tall stained glass windows, that was a deliberate thing to picture Bible stories in the windows because the people generally couldn't read. Mm. Only the priests could read and they read in Latin. So, The people, if they wanted to learn the Bible at all, it was kind of a feudal society back then, so they weren't completely free. Mm -hmm. They would go to church on the high days and go to church on Sunday, and they couldn't understand the priest anyway because he was speaking in Latin, but they could look at the windows. Mm. And that also part of the purpose of some of that really strange early church art where people looked too long and too thin and Mm -hmm. gaunt and odd was intentional as well because it would not look natural. And so people had to turn their heads up to see the stained glass windows go up, up, up into those vaulted ceilings. So it was to bring their minds to an otherworldly place. Mm -hmm. So they would see the apostles and they would see the prophets in those windows and they would understand a little bit of the Bible through that art. And you can see that from the get-go, those people were hearing about the Bible characters, and they were learning them in the art, but they were not learning them as the Bible portrayed them. I look back on that and I think, this is profound and powerful. People Mm -hmm. have used art to disseminate their ideology, true or not. And you and I had Adventist art. And isn't it true that some of the work was done by an artist who also gave art to the Mormons? Oh, in Adventism, absolutely. Harry Anderson. Many people who grew up on Uncle Arthur's books had a lot of Harry Anderson paintings. A lot of the paintings were done by him. And he also painted large murals for the Mormon Visitor Center. And I remember visiting that Visitor Center when I was teaching as a young teacher in the 70s. Um, I was at Gem State Academy, and we went on a music tour. I was a sponsor, and we toured the Mormon Visitor Center. And I remember seeing those huge wall-sized murals of Bible stories and realizing it was Harry Anderson. And that was the first I knew that he had done both religions. I think he claimed to be Adventist, but he painted with impunity both people's versions of the Bible, which Mm -hmm. told me something. Mm -hmm. They've since been replaced in the Mormon Center, by the way. But it was interesting to find that out. We're going to read verses 1 to 15. And go ahead and read that, Nikki, and then we'll talk through this, what was going on with Daniel. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom." Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, 
but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, The statement is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then, as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel, and even until sunset he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Wow. I had never noticed in the past how clever this deception was, this trap was, that these people laid for Darius. So let's go back to the beginning here and just set the stage. At the end of chapter 5, what had happened? What was going on after Belshazzar saw the handwriting on the wall? Well, Daniel came and told him that his number was up (laughs) and the Medes and the Persians had breached the walls of the city and they had taken it over and they killed Belshazzar. And Darius received the kingdom, it said. At this point, and we learned last week or the week before, that this invasion of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians occurred approximately in 539 BC, about 66 years after Daniel had been taken. And Daniel had been taken as a young teenager, likely. So, he was close to 80. He was an old man. So, in a sense, this story is the bookend at the back end of Daniel's life. We had the first six chapters of Daniel are purely historic. They're accounts, stories of what happened And this is the last historic episode in the book, and it's the end of Daniel's life. So, we have chapter one with him as a young teenager being Babylonized and taught, and yet standing firm for his God and refusing the king's food. And here at the other end, we have another injunction, and we have Daniel honoring his God. 
So who was Darius? Well, this is another name that history doesn't seem to have a lot of record of. There's about three ideas of who Darius may have been. There was a tradition in these ancient kings that they had throne names and real names. And when they were considered by their king so-and-so, that was a different name from the way they were known, perhaps on the battlefield. Nobody knows for sure if this was the case with Darius. But there are two ideas that rise to the surface as potential identities of Darius. Darius might have been the throne name for Cyrus, although I personally find this less convincing. But the phrase that says at the end of the chapter that Daniel enjoyed success until the end of Cyrus's reign, that can be read legitimately in a different way. That could be said in verse 628, in the reign of Darius, that is the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. So, nobody knows for sure, but they think it could have been Cyrus, another name for Cyrus. But the most probable identity for Darius is that this was the throne name for the general who had actually invaded the city the night Belshazzar was killed. So, we know that the Medes were outside the city and the general named Gobrias was deflecting the water of the Euphrates so the army could come in through the empty channel and invade the city. And there is quite a bit of thought that this could be the identity of Darius. Who he is isn't completely understood, but we know that he's the one who received the kingdom, that he was there the night Belshazzar was killed. And now we come to chapter six and we read that Daniel is working for him. Nikki, could you talk to us a bit about the position that Daniel had? Once again, we see God giving Daniel favor in the eyes of these leaders who don't know him. Mm -hmm. This is a new kingdom. It's a new kingdom. I did read some commentators suggest that because as he came in and took over the city, Daniel was wearing a purple robe and all of this, that he was among those that he consulted when he took over the city. Well, but it's all speculation. So, true. I mean, we don't, it's interesting. we don't know. And, and so however that played out, what is said in the text is that Daniel had an extraordinary spirit. And that seems to be what sets him apart in the eyes of all of these pagans who recognize him. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to learn that the word extraordinary there was the same word that was used to describe the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had seen and built. Oh, that's interesting. It was a standout, Mm -hmm. (laughs) standout spirit. It says here that Darius had appointed 120 satraps to rule over the different regions of Babylon. He had three commissioners who were over the satraps so that the king might suffer no loss. And you think, what kind of loss? And then you think, well, what's human nature like? And it's interesting. I read one commentator who said, the commissioners were probably put in charge of the satraps so that each one held 40 satraps accountable to him. And it was to make sure that those satraps didn't steal from the king or undermine the king. I mean, who knows exactly, but I think that if you have like a governor who's far away from the head leader, they can do a lot of damage before the head leader finds out, especially without any kind of electronic communication. (laughs) Yeah. So those satraps were charged with collecting taxes right? and they could steal from the king. And so having someone like Daniel looking over their shoulder would be upsetting to them. You would think, wouldn't you? (laughs) So they had this experience with Daniel 
over them as a commissioner. And then they catch wind that Darius is thinking about putting him over the entire kingdom, (laughs) which tells you something about Darius's trust in Daniel. Mm -hmm. And it tells you something about the true nature of all these satraps. Exactly. As the satraps began to think about what it would mean for Daniel to be over them, they plotted. What did they plot? Well, they wanted to find a way, they wanted to find grounds of accusation to get rid of him. And it's interesting to me that in verse four, it says the commissioners and the satraps begin trying to find ground. So there were crooked commissioners who were working with the satraps. Daniel was a problem for them. Yes. And since there were only three commissioners and Daniel was one of the three, it's interesting that this one man presented so much threat to everybody else in the kingdom, except perhaps Darius. It tells me something about Darius, and that's something I had not seen in the story before, working on it to talk about it with you. Yeah, me neither. And it makes me think, again, of the fact that God always places His people where He wants them. You know, Daniel didn't wake up and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to ingratiate myself to Darius and get in good with this new kingdom. He was 80. You know, he had just watched Belshazzar be defeated, his whole life invaded by this new kingdom. He didn't know what this would mean for him, but God had him there. And from the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire, Daniel had a place of authority. That's something only God could do. And it also tells me God was working on Darius's heart for him to trust Daniel from the get-go, because Daniel represented Babylon to him. God places his men and women often in hostile, godless environments, and he keeps them there and preserves them until he is done with them there. And I think we can have a take-home here that God's people need to live in a way that if their lives are examined, they will not ever reveal compromise. And that's only something you can do if you know the Lord. And Daniel knew his God, and he trusted his God. And he responded to his God in every situation he faced. I don't see Daniel responding necessarily to the situation the way that we would expect a human to. I agree. He responded with eyes on the Lord all the way through. And that's why when they're looking for grounds to charge him, they couldn't find anything. No corruption. He was faithful. He wasn't even negligent. He did his work well. Yeah. There was nothing wrong with them. They couldn't nail him down. Yeah, and somehow Darius knew this about Daniel and knew that this was the kind of man he wanted governing his kingdom, and he wanted the satraps and the commissioners answering to a man like this, who would protect Darius's interests and the interests of the kingdom. And it's interesting, too, because it wasn't just that he went to work, did his nine to five faithfully and went home because these men knew they would not find any ground of accusation against him unless they found it against him with regard to the law of his God. They knew that he was a faithful Israelite. And they knew his God was a different God. Mm -hmm. So what was the plot they cooked up? Well, they went to the king and and this was a well thought out plot. They planned this in advance. They went to him all together, the commissioners and the satraps, went to the king and spoke to him. And they told him that they started with flattery mm-hmm. and they told him that he ought to make this law, that nobody should petition any God or any man but him for 30 days. And the 30 days is interesting to me. They knew it wasn't going to take long. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting, Nikki. It wasn't this permanent law. They just needed to get something on him. Yeah. 
And so they told him 30 days, you should do this. And you know, that's a typical tool for manipulation. The cults do it too. Yes, they do. You start with flattery. Yep. Thinking back on Adventism, it was always that way. When you're looking for a new convert, you start, first of all, as an Adventist, by appealing to their sense of well-being and good health and almost special knowledge. We can help you with special knowledge. We can help you have a better life than your neighbors. We can help you live longer than your parents lived. We can tell you the secret knowledge of what the prophecies mean. We can tell you the true meaning of the book of Daniel. And those we's, those are royal we's. Yes. I mean, the whole perception of consensus and of the other person being on the outside of that or on the wrong side of the consensus is also a a big tool used for manipulating and controlling. Look at all of our hospitals. Look at all of our schools. Look at how many people we have in our organization. I remember hearing a pastor say, if church growth is what indicates whether or not we're a sound church, well, then the cults are winning. That is a great point because that's true. (laughs) They have a way of collecting people and they have a way of collecting people out of Christianity because they can mimic the words, but give the special insider knowledge. In a sense, these men, while they weren't asking Darius to come into a special knowledge, they were deceiving him with a sense that they had a religious prerogative. You can be our God. We can pray to you. Like other emperors of the past, you too can be a God. And they said all commissioners, but Daniel was not a part of this. That's right. They lied to him. Mm -hmm. Daniel did not approve of this. He didn't even know. And they're setting up a trap that's not only going to be a trap for Daniel, but a trap for Darius. And I would say, especially for Darius. I don't think Daniel ever really felt trapped because he was thoroughly a worshiper of Yahweh and nothing would ever dissuade him from that. So even if circumstances were entrapping, he was free internally. Mm -hmm. But Darius, that was a different story. He was walking into a trap and didn't see it because the ego and the flattery of these satraps blinded him. The plot was to find Daniel praying to his God and then what was the penalty going to be? To throw him in the lion's den. Number one, this must have been a standard form of punishment for a miscreant in (laughs) Medo-Persia. Can you imagine? No, I'm wondering where they got the lions from. Is this this Nebuchadnezzar's garden? (laughs) Where did did the lions come from? And they had to keep these lions alive Mm -hmm. so that they'd be there if they needed to have somebody eaten. Mm -hmm. It doesn't tell us anything about that. But they definitely had them. And it was apparently a standard punishment. They didn't have to collect them for this. Daniel is going to be threatened with death, a most painful kind of death. It's interesting to me to think, this is not an old or new thing. This is a standard thing for people who love and trust God in a godless world. Mm -hmm. We find Peter saying in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 16, something that speaks to all of us when we find ourselves coming face to face with the problem of, are we going to be faithful to God? Are we going to be faithful to the people that we love? What are we going to respond to? And here's what Peter says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And you know, Nikki, what strikes me about this is even though Peter is writing to Christians post-cross, this is exactly what Daniel was facing too. He was suffering for his loyalty to the one true God whom he knew and honored and loved. He couldn't defend himself. He couldn't work himself out of this trap they had set. He could have tried to hide. But doesn't this remind you of what you go through when you leave Adventism? Yeah. And that's a little bit more surprising, I think, because you you spend your whole life believing you're a, a Bible-believing Christian, and not just a Bible-believing Christian. You're the most Bible-believing Christian. <laughs> yes. And then suddenly you have these questions that the Bible's answering and revealing that you've been in error and you bring them to the people who have taught you to trust the Bible and they turn on you. Yeah. And you begin to suffer for truth and for the name of Christ at the hands of people who claim to be people of the truth. Yes. It's very confusing. It's very confusing. And it's also a huge onslaught and a temptation not to act with integrity. You may be convinced in your head that you do believe the Bible, but when there's all the confusion and all the threatened loss and all the actually slander can come out of people's mouths towards you when you start to say no to the Sabbath and yes to Jesus, there's a huge temptation to compromise. Peter's saying no, and we look at Daniel and we see that he said, no, nothing can make me compromise. Yeah, it's interesting. I love the fact that in verse 10, it doesn't say, now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he grieved. He did not feel sorry for himself. I know. It says, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. So he went in, he gave thanks. And, yes. and you know, when I read this verse at first, I was a little confused about why his windows were open toward Jerusalem and why he was doing this three times a day. It sounded like how I understood Muslim prayers. So I wanted to look into it a little. And there's this verse, these verses in First Kings that are so cool. I'd love to read them. They shed light on this. In 1 Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 48, it says, If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you have given to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for your name, then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you, and make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive, that they may have compassion on them. 
for they are your people and your inheritance which you've brought forth from Egypt, from the midst of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and to the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you. Daniel knew scripture. That's why he was facing Jerusalem. And isn't that so interesting that God let Israel know? I mean, he did not surprise them with their exile. Mm -mm. He let them know the day was coming when their apostasy would so have broken their terms of the covenant that he would take them into exile. But if they honored him and remembered the city he had given them, he would cause their enemies to have compassion on them. And here's Daniel, just like the three guys in the furnace back in chapter four, years before. God caused Nebuchadnezzar to have compassion on them when he saw the one like the Son of God walking with him in the flames. These men knew Scripture, honored God, and God kept His Word. And they knew that He said, when you walk through the fire, I will be with you. Yeah. So, here we have Daniel threatened with this, but he doesn't do anything different. It helps us understand the story a little bit to look at this idea that I noticed in verses 1 through 15, three separate times in these 15 verses, the idea of the law of the Medes and Persians is mentioned, and it's mentioned as like an absolute unmoving thing. These men who caused Darius to write this injunction and sign it knew that he was signing into law something that would become part of what was known as the law of the Medes and the Persians. Now, clearly, this is a different form of government than Nebuchadnezzar had. Nebuchadnezzar was a law unto himself. When he made that golden image on the plain of Dura and ordered everyone to worship it, he had the full authority to do that. He had the full authority to throw everybody into the furnace who didn't worship, and he did it in a rage. It was clear that he did. But here, Darius has to answer to not just the fact that he has signed this into law, but the fact that it is now part of an unmoving, quotes, eternal document that he can't break. The law of the Medes and Persians established that even the king was subject to the law. Nebuchadnezzar was kind of a law unto himself, but not so in the law of the Medes and Persians. The kings were subject to the law, even if they made the law. And this is the same law that we find in the book of Esther, when they find out that Haman has a plot against the Jews, and Hasuerus cannot undo the law he has made at Haman's urging because it's part of the law of the Medes and Persians. But when Mordecai and Esther disclose the plot, the king gives them his signet ring and allows them to write a new law that gives the Jews permission to defend themselves on the day of attack. It just explains a lot about the form of government, and it explains a lot about the king's distress. He can't just decide to undo what he said. You know, one of the phrases that I kept saying repeated was that these men came by agreement. Oh, yeah. There's not a lot that can unite ungodly people. That's true. But their hatred of Daniel united them. So they came by agreement and found Daniel making petition. They didn't find him like, oh, look, there's Daniel. They <laughs> plotted to be there because they knew he'd be there. Yeah. We just read in the previous verse that he did it like he had always done it. So they show up, they catch him, and then they approach the king. And before they ever tell him who they got, they remind him of his law. 
Yeah. They say, did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any God or man beside you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? And the king replied, this statement is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Bam, he's trapped. There he is. And he was trapped initially by his own ego. Mm -hmm. They succeeded in flattering him into being a god. So then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, not one of your commissioners. Right. They don't give him the respect that they ought to. They were under him. He was over them in authority. They said, one of the exiles from Judah pays no attention to you, O king. Well, that sounds an awful lot like what those jealous Chaldeans said about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they said, these men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image. They're always playing to the king's ego and setting him up to look like it's a political rebellion. And it wasn't. That's not what was happening. So they say he pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. And Darius knew at that point that he was trapped. It's interesting that he never thought about the fact this would expose his man, but that it would threaten his head man, Daniel, the one he was setting over the kingdom. Somehow the flattery and the idea of worshiping him was so overwhelming, so compelling, so, well, of course I'm king. That was so powerful that he never asked himself, really, is everybody on board, even Daniel? When they said everybody was on board. And now he thinks about Daniel. So verse 14 says that when he heard it, he was deeply distressed. And it made me think of Daniel's reaction when he heard what was going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. There was clearly a relationship of some sort here, certainly one of trust. I think probably respect too. I agree. And he set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. That actually stood out to me just reading this for the recording. Right. As I read it, he was exerting himself. That means people could see what he was doing. And I think that's why the men came by agreement to the king and said, recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So their whole role in the kingdom is to make sure laws are kept and followed. And they're coming to the king Mm -hmm. under that authority saying, check yourself. Because you have just made a law of the Medes and Persians. Mm -hmm. You can't back it up. And Nebuchadnezzar probably could have because he was an authoritarian sole ruler. Darius was in a different kind of government and he was subject to the laws that even he made and he couldn't change it. The king is in a quandary. The men are jubilant internally because they know they've got Darius where they want him and they have Daniel where they want him. So God has everyone right where he wants them. He is going to glorify himself through what comes next. The weakness of his law is revealed to the king. He can't alter his own decree. He's bound by his own word, even if he's been deceived And what's interesting to me in all of this as we read this account is that there's really only one man in this account that has peace, and that's Daniel. He was never upset by the decree 
according to the account. He kept doing exactly what he had always done without trying to hide. His conscience is clear. He trusts his God. He may die by lions, but he feels no regret or guilt. But the king does. He's filled with regret. And the satraps and the commissioners are internally gleeful, a kind of a malicious glee. So, as we leave Daniel here in this place of what is actually going to happen to him, and we think about what it means to live with integrity, I have to ask, have you trusted the eternal God of Daniel, the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who sent Jesus, his son, to take your sin, to carry it to the cross, to die for it, to fully propitiate for your sin? who was buried and who was raised on the third day to give you eternal life. And if you haven't trusted him, this is the time to repent, to acknowledge your need of a savior, to recognize that you can't change your heart or recommend yourself to God, but only the sovereign God who rescued Daniel from all these threats through his entire life in Babylon. Only he can rescue you. And he has sent his son to do that. And we ask you to trust him today. Join us next week as we continue looking at this biblical account of Daniel in the lion's den. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.